Welcome to the Building a New America podcast, Law, Politics, and the Constitution. I'm your host, Jonathan Arias. Every four years when we elect the president, we evaluate the health of our democracy. But it seems like we're doing it a lot more often today. Tonight's episode is called Democracy at a Crossroads. Democracy derives from the word, from the Greek word demos, which means people, and kratos, which means power. The people hold the power. The definition in the dictionary, it says that it's a government where the ultimate power is vested in the people and is exercised by them directly or through elected officials. Now, if we look over to the preamble of the Constitution, it says that we, the people, in order to establish a more perfect union, do establish and ordain a constitution. And what this means is that without the people, there will not be a constitution. But the most important question for me is, who are the people? Now, this country has over 325 million people, and we're not all the same. And what I often ask myself is, how could one federal government with only two parties properly represent the interests of so many people? It almost seems impossible. Now, the founders of our country were somewhat skeptical of democracy. In fact, if you look at the Constitution, it says that the president will be elected not by the people, but by the Electoral College. Now, whatever definition that we use for democracy, most people will say that it's a right to vote, it's a right to participate in our democracy, to know how our taxes are being spent. It's about essentially resolving disputes without resorting to violence. Democracy requires civic engagement. Now, to understand a democracy, we have to look at the opposite, which are autocracies and dictatorships. Autocracies and dictatorships are based off fear and anger and democracies are based off trust. But in 2019, I often ask myself, do we have this trust? Now it's tough to say, but I've come across a number of polls that indicated that the public's trust in the government is at a historically low level. So what does this mean moving forward? Now we're about to enter one of the fiercest election cycles in modern time, and we have to ask many questions, and tonight I'm hoping to get you those answers. Now. Tonight, I'll be speaking with the longest serving governor of Vermont and the former chair of the Democratic National Committee from, the, from 2005 to 2009. As chair, his, implement, his implementation of the 50-state strategy is credited with the Democratic victories in the 2006 and 2008 elections. Now, in 2004, Governor Dean ran for, uh, ran for president, where he catapulted to the top of the pack with his strong opposition to the war in Iraq and his high-energy speeches. Please welcome Mr. Dean. Thank you very much for your time. How are you doing Thank tonight? You. I'm good. Thank you for having us. <laughs> <laughs> so I would, I'd like to start with Spark Micro Grants. Yep. What they're doing is that they're uh, part of a grassroots organization that helps uh, communities across Africa build their communities, they move, uh, move away from the prescriptive model of helping communities. What attracted you to Spark Micro Grants? Um, well, actually, I was judging an internet contest about 10 or so years ago, and uh, it was a young lady named Sasha Fisher who was competing, who had gone to LaGuardia High School in New York, but then ended up by some incredible fluke to, at the University of Vermont. <laughs> and she went to uh, South Sudan because of a history professor, I mean, a political science professor that we both know who was her mentor. And, uh, and at 18 years old and decided that when she, after she got back that American foreign aid made people more dependent, not less dependent. Mm -hmm. And that she was determined to start uh, an organization which allowed people to a have agency 
and mm-hmm. to build their own agency so that they could control their lives. And that's what she does in communities. It's, I'm not sure you want me to go through the entire process, but basically sure. they send, she has a hundred, or at least at that time, a hundred African college graduates, university graduates who go into the field, organize, help organize meetings, but they aren't allowed to conduct the meeting and they're not allowed to answer questions. The villages have to work out their own plans for a $3,000 grant they might get for to have a health center or a school or whatever it is or a right. business model. And they decide. And it's had a couple of really interesting effects. First of all, uh, the discussions are actually more important than the real addition to the village. Mm-hmm. Second of all, there's one grant and that's all. So they have to decide how, how it's going to be built, how it's going to be run afterwards, how it's going to be maintained. Mm-hmm. These dis- uh, One of the byproducts of this discussion is that women in a patriarchal society actually become a, a major force because the societies are often built, the men give the orders and the women do the work. Well, you can't have these meetings without the people who are going to do the work. Mm-hmm. So families have actually posted on Sasha's website, Sparks Microgrants website. Um, we used to, I used to make all the decisions for my family, said the, says the husband, but now my wife and I make them jointly mm-hmm. because we learn how to do that in this community, organizing and empowerment right. uh, lessons. So it's an amazing uh, thing that's going on and, and it has the support, for example, of the Rwandan government, who, which I was a little nervous about, because sometimes when you do community organizing, right. leaders don't think think that's going to undermine their power. But I Kagame see. doesn't believe that, and is, and it's they're also very active in Uganda and Burundi. And what lessons can we learn from that type of organization? We can learn that the best way to empower people is not to write them a check, is to give them agency and make them understand and believe that they can change the world, and they can. And where are we lacking in that in this in this country? Oh, well, where do we start? Um, <laughs> Let's get a start. Look, we, we, I think this is actually going to change in, in your generation because of the Internet and because you basically don't believe in institutions particularly, which has its downsides as well as its upsides. Um, but I, I think people want agency. And, and, and the truth is you're not going to get anybody to give you agency. You have to take it. Right, and that's what's good, and that's what's happening now. Mm-hmm. It's happening for for especially for young people. You mentioned that my generation doesn't trust institutions much. You including said that political parties. Including, I agree with that also. But why don't we trust institutions? In your opinion, um, partly because you are the most powerful as individuals, institutions. I mean, uh, individuals that have ever walked the face of the earth. I'll give you an example. I was obviously not in favor of the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, we were in college when that was going on. Um, and, and at the same time, the civil rights movement was going on. We're still marching for civil rights, although it's, mm-hmm. the situation has improved, but we still have a long way to go. It took us seven years to stop the war marching around. And mm-hmm. So today, a single individual and can and did uh, in 2008, a college senior mm-hmm. who couldn't find a job, of course, because it was 2008, mm-hmm. Uh, and Bank of America decided they were going to rate, cost, charge everybody five bucks for having a debit card. She went online to change.org. She got 600,000 people to say they were going to take their money out of Bank of America. Bank of America called her up. You know, young lady, you don't understand how banking works. Right. Well, all they were trying to do is fleece people, and they figured nobody would say anything, or they'd complain and they'd pay it. And she said, I don't understand how banking works, but I understand that I don't have a job, and you're going to charge me $60 a year for doing something that doesn't add anything to the value of what your service is. Mm-hmm. So they gave it up. Three days later, 
in one of the dumbest business decisions ever, Verizon announced they were going to charge you $2 to pay your bill online. Getting learned. Now, first of all, that's dumb because it costs more to process a check than it right. does to do the online. Second of all, they just figured, okay, people will complain, but then they'll pay the $2. Mm-hmm. So that's $2 times 12 times whatever, however many subscribers they have. And they're, it's about $70 or $80 million, mm-hmm. right? Right. Molly Katzko went back online to change.org and got 300,000 people to say they were going to sign it with AT&T instead of Verizon. And three days later, Verizon gave up. Right. An individual could organize that because of the Internet. You could never do that in the 60s and 70s. We were really politically active, but we had to have institutions. And you all have grown up without having to have institutions, for the most part. I actually do think you need them. Here's the other problem with institutions. They're far from perfect. And the core problem with an institution is that if you put the institution up against its mission, the existence triumphs over the mission every time. Mm -hmm. So that's a very unattractive process. And in fact, institutions are, are not attractive. They are necessary. Because if you have anything that you believe in that's more important than you are, um, then it doesn't last after your interest. Let's just uh, the obviously mm-hmm. obvious cases of you know if you die or something like that. Right. But, let's, but more commonly for a young person, maybe you're going to get married, maybe you're going to have kids, maybe you have a job that's you know ten hours, fifteen, twenty hours a day. Mm-hmm. Well, now you can't go and do all this stuff on the internet. You need without an institution to carry on the things that you like. Mm-hmm. When you can't put as much time into it as you would have liked then nothing happens. So you do need institutions, but they're going to be completely reshaped by your generation. Hmm. You know, that reminds me of another poll that I came across that even though there's less trust in the government, there's the most trust on our local governments. Because I think it's my opinion that you'll probably run into your elected official. There's a good chance that if I go to the board meetings or the community meetings, I'll actually run into people. And what I notice is that we have a lot more power than we think. Right. We have a lot more power than we think. But just going into the party now, if you don't mind me asking, yep. I've noticed that the Democratic Party is being essentially taken over by a lot of young people. Yep. A lot of young people, and there have been lots of support for that, but then there are also members that aren't so supportive supportive of that. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> young people, as we said, don't particularly like institutions. They don't particularly like uh, political parties because they're institutions. So the DNC, the Democratic Party, is being taken over by young people, not because they all want to join the Democratic Party, <laughs> which they don't. It's because our values are the same as theirs. We value inclusion. We value diversity. We value human rights. Gay rights rights for this generation is a civil rights issue of their generation. And the Democrats believe it. And climate change is the number one issue. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the Democrats believe all this stuff. So it, instead, I wouldn't say that all these kids are running to be Democrats, mm-hmm. but they're all voting for the Democratic Party. And Ralph Northam, who before his unfortunateness in Virginia, was a centrist boring centrist. It wasn't that they all running out to AOC's campaign or Bernie Sanders' campaign. They, they, the value, core values of the Democratic Party are their values. 70, 69% of people under 35 voted for Ralph Northam. Mm-hmm. That's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, about, so we get about 70% of young people's votes. And they learned a bitter lesson when Donald Trump, who doesn't stand for a single value that young people stand for, <laughs> One, they were in mourning and grief, and now they've all organized. The main reason that we picked up 40 seats is because all these young people got organized. And in Virginia, we picked up 15 seats. 11 of the 15 were women. Mm-hmm. Our core base in the Democratic Party are young people, people of color, and women. That is the core base. 
Well, that looks a lot like what young people want the country to look like. In fact, it looks a lot like what, young, what the country is going to look like. Right. So that's the good news for the Democratic Party. They will remake the institution in ways that we can't imagine. Well, what do you, I know what your opinion, opinion is on the, D, uh, the DCCC. I think uh, recently they've announced that they won't work with any challengers to incumbent uh, members right. of the Democratic Party. What effect do you think that will be to our democracy? None, because they'll get run over. Look, the, yeah. the, in Washington, Washington is middle school on steroids. Yeah. It really is. I mean, <laughs> they all have this, they really are, they're like smart 13-year-olds. And they work hard, and most of them aren't crooks, some of them are. Right. Uh, but, but they have their own culture. It's very bizarre. So they'll do something like this, and you guys will run them over anyway. And then what are they going to do? To the credit of the Virginia Democratic Party, most of the young people and the, and the people of color and, and so forth who won those seats... Mm-hmm. And particularly women, right. who won the seats. Actually, they were insurgents running against the establishment. Mm-hmm. But the good thing about the Virginia party is when they lost, their establishment candidates lost, they turned right around and supported the insurgents. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what the, what the Democratic Party is going to do. The DCCC isn't going to succeed in this because it's certainly not going to stop people from running. What's right. going to happen is they're going to go out and find new consultants or create their own consultants, or they're finally going to come to the realization that Washington consultants really aren't worth what you pay them anyway right. and find somebody else to do the job. Right. It's a great business opportunity. Yeah, it is a great now. business opportunity. Right. Now, some would say that the best Democratic candidate right now, and I know you said that you would be surprised if the party came out with an all-white male ticket. If they do, we're going to lose. Right. So how do you, conv- I mean, how do you convince those, you know, those people within the party that say we need to elect someone who needs to get back those swing voters who we lost in the last election? The way, look, there's, what does that mean? The new definition, there's a new definition of swing voters, which Trump actually figured out. Swing voters now are no longer the people who vote Democrat in one election and Republican in another next election. Swing voters are the people who either don't vote or do vote. And Trump got a lot of those folks out. What Stacey Abrams did in the South, which was really smart, was to say, wait a minute, we're never going to win if we cozy up to be as conservative as we can just Mm -hmm. enough to get those people to help us vote and get us over. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. What we're going to do is be so exciting to our base that they're all going to come out. Mm And Stacey Abrams would have won had not Brian Kemp stolen the election as Secretary of State. So um, that's the way we're going to do this. We're not going to do this by, you know, hoping that maybe some of the people who are, you know, not exactly inclined towards our view of the world are going to come up and come back. And some of them may because they're fed up with Trump's corruption. But I think uh, the way to change that is to is be so exciting to our base that they come out. And if women, people of color, and young people come out, we're going to win. And if they don't, we're not going to win, and Trump will get reelected. Now, I think the party has an obligation to reflect its base. I think when— Well, elect- it's also smart politics. Right, absolutely, right. Yeah. And the reason why is because I think elected officials and, them, and, and the party sets the tone for the rest of the country. Because I think we're under a false impression that there's diversity in places that are most necessary. I think if you look at the younger, you know, almost like the, the lower levels of any institutions, whether it's law school or business school, yes, there is more diversity. When you rise up to the ranks, when you get to the positions that are most important, let's look at law firms, for example. The majority of partners are all white. I think the, the percentage of black um, partners is under 2%. People of color might be a little higher. If we go over to the Fortune 500 uh, companies, I think the CEOs, I read an article that said it's maybe about 8 Right, we go to the tech industry or the private equity firms. There isn't diversity in the right. areas that matter the most, and I think the party has. And like you said, it's, it's smart politics. But at this point, there should not be this this mentality that the party needs to essentially bring back people that find that the party is moving too far to the left. 
You know, so what, what, do you, what do you say of people well, who believe? Well, the first thing is I don't think the party is moving to the left. Mm-hmm. I, think it, it, I, think, I think the country is moving to the left mm-hmm. um, a little bit. Um, I mean, I think most people think Medicare for All is a really good idea. The mechanics of how you get there is going to be different among the different candidates. Mm-hmm. We're having a real gun debate now for the first time in about 25 years. Politicians are no longer afraid to give the finger to the NRA, which mm-hmm. has deserved it for quite some time. Um, so we are moving, uh, I think, left. The party, however, I think is moving to the center. And here's the evidence. It drives me crazy with all these journalists write, oh, the party's moving to the left. B.S. We have five very attractive, smart, young candidates who get all the ink. 35 people got elected from places like Orange County, California, Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, Georgia, Central Pennsylvania. The, half of them served in the armed forces. Mm-hmm. These are, this is not exactly moving to the left. Mm-hmm. The country is moving to the left. The party is moving back towards where the country, where the, most of the country is. I think that's very good. All these centrists from places like Oklahoma, they're all on board with let's do something about making sure everybody has health care. At what point did that start to happen? When your generation started taking over, (laughs) because your generation is more, your generation is actually a really interesting generation. Unlike ours, your ideological bandwidth is narrower because you're more (laughs) fact-based. With us, especially, I can remember this well when I was in school, in those days, the left was crazy. as opposed to the right, which is crazy now. I mean, you know, they were blowing up buildings and people were dying and, you know, stuff is just, you know. So now the right's crazy. I guess this goes in cycles. Um, so, uh, but, but the difference is, in our generation, I think, was more ideological. And if you challenge my belief, I, I'm going to fight you whether I have the facts or not. I think your generation is much more interested in facts. <laughs> Uh, and therefore, you're much more willing to listen to each other right. and actually come to a conclusion. I also think your generation really cares about metrics. So if I come to you with an idea and we both decide this is a great idea and we look at this <laughs> in two, two or three years and say, wait a minute, look at all these numbers. It's not working. We don't have a problem with abandoning it. It's right. not about whether it's a left idea or a right idea. It's just whether it works or not. Right. It's a much more practical generation, your generation, I think, than mine. Speaking about fact-based, I think that one of the major factors in the last election was this concept of fake news, misinformation. Right. What do we trust? And I think that also plays into the lack of trust that we have in our institutions. I personally, whenever I read any news article, I always read it with, the, with, very skept- with a lot of skepticism. But what advice would you give for us to decipher what's going on with misinformation? How do we tell what's true in today's... Well, first of all, education matters enormously mm-hmm. um, uh, because the more educated you are, the less likely you are to fall for, quote-unquote, fake news. I mean, what Trump calls fake news is not fake news. Right. Everybody has bias. There is no reporter in the world because they're a human being and every human being has bias. So, I mean, it, it, you're never going to read an, an article with no bias. You just it, And so we tend to read articles with the same biases that we have which is fine. I, I, what I try to do is I find worldviews that I'm comfortable with and that I trust, and I read them. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I know the reporter, that matters a lot to me, mm-hmm. because if they say something, I'm more inclined to believe somebody I know than somebody who's just writing something. But we should never blame the press for being biased, because you can't not be biased if you, everybody has their own experience. Here's what I teach in class about this is real. I do an exercise where everybody has to, three people have to interview each other and then, Mm -hmm. and then introduce. And when they do, they tell the story in ways that sometimes somebody says, wait a minute, I didn't say that. Mm -hmm. So here's what happens. Let's say you're the reporter. 
Uh, I'm, you're interviewing me and you're writing and here's our audience, right? So I have a life experience. You're asking me about my life experience. I have a view about my life experience, but you have a life experience. And when you write your story, you are putting my life experience through your filter, <laughs> right? And these folks all have a life experience. And every time they read your story, they put what you wrote through their filter. And there's 35, 40, 50 people in the room. Mm -hmm. So that's why we think we get offended. Sometimes people deliberately put bad stuff in their stories that's not true. And sometimes mm -hmm. they do make mistakes and put stuff that's not right. true. But mostly the stuff that we write about is, is through, it has to be, how can right. it not can be through it. anything right. but our own personal filter? And that's why there's bias in the press. Mm -hmm. That is not, for the most part, malevolent bias. The malevolent bias is the Russian propaganda. It's Trump. Uh, Trump just hit the 10,000 mark for lying in the first two and a half years. That's pretty good. Somebody actually counted every lie that Trump told. And in the Washington Post, big headline, Trump hits 10,000 mark. It's <laughs> pretty fantastic. Um, so, I mean, most people aren't like that. And, but they, there is, we're going to have bias in all of us. And the twitch is, you have to figure out whose bias you're most comfortable with. Try to think about your own biases. I read Vox. I read ProPublica. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the New York Times um, political reporting because I think it's mm. lazy, a lot mm -hmm. of it. And um, so I don't read that much. Mm -hmm. um, I read The Guardian mm -hmm. uh, because that's how I discovered, that's how it came out against the Iraq war. Uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of a Hillary Clinton Democrat on defense. I, I'm not a you know I'm not a right winger because Democrats don't do that. But I have a <laughs> strong view about the Russians and so forth. Right. Um, but I came out against the war because I could read the, in the Guardian. I was reading MI6, uh -huh. which is the British intelligence agency's reports that saying we did not have weapons of mass. They the Iraqis didn't have weapons of mass destruction. They didn't have the atomic bomb, which Cheney was trying to hint around that they might. And I just thought, you know, I'd been through this movie before. We had two presidents, one of each party, lying through their teeth mm -hmm. every day about the Vietnam War. And I think if you're going to ask somebody to send their kids to possibly die in some place, mm -hmm. you better be telling them the truth. And Bush wasn't. Why do you think the other uh, people that were running for president opposed the war? Why, why were you the only one that was doing that at the time? Because they were afraid for political reasons. Hmm. They voted for the war because they didn't want to have Bush tell, telling everybody that he was they were wusses and afraid to defend the country. And I think that's why you catapulted to the top of the ranks during that as time. As part of it. The other part is I had 20, we had no money, so we had 23-year-olds and we let them do whatever they wanted. And they <laughs> and they, I'm serious. And they invented all this stuff that I get all the credit for. They did crowdfunding. They they did all this stuff. I, we didn't do it. We just did whatever they told us. Right. Absolutely. Now, 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 now since we're on that, now since we're on that, I understand that you're running a new voter database yeah. system. Yep. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yep. Uh, the Republicans have had this for a long time. The Republicans have an advantage in running campaigns. As it turns out, the two best campaigns ever run for president were run by a Democrat, which is Barack Obama. But the next eight campaigns that have been really well run were run by Republicans. They have a top-down method of running campaigns. You have to understand, politics is nothing but a substitute for war. It is a war. Politics is a war. By another, it's war by another name, as Klaus Fitz once said. Um, so it's po both politics and, or, and, war, uh, and war are about asset allocation, who gets what, and succession, who gets to take over next. So the stakes are enormously high. <laughs> What the Republicans do is somebody comes in and says, here's a half a billion dollars, run the database, and here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't do that. We have to argue about it for months, and different interests say this, and some, you know, that's the Democrats, where, you know. So 
what Obama did was take this enormous energy that young people had, and he had some people like David Pluff who really uh, could apply discipline to this model, and it was incredible what they were able to do. We don't do top-down models very well, so here's what we are doing that's different than the Republicans. They have a database that has all kinds of people in it. The campaign finance laws prohibit that kind of a database from being used as, as it widely as it could be if it's in the actual committee, so their database is outside the committee. What we're setting up now, belatedly, is not a database because the politics inside the Democratic Party is too difficult. We're setting up a data exchange. It's going to be outside the Democratic Party, mm -hmm. um, and there are going to be lots of members. Mm -hmm. All the core Democratic base organizations that have lists mm -hmm. will be members if they wish to be, and we will exchange our data. So we won't actually own a list but you'll be able to call up and say, I need you know, 10,000 pro-choice women in Wyoming, and I'll go to one of the other members and they'll get the information, assuming they're willing to put stuff back in. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's gonna work. It's, it's, you know, we're behind the eight ball. We're trying to set it up as fast as we can. You know, now on the same page of data, I think now we're becoming, uh, we're becoming a lot more protective over our data. Right. You know, when I first signed up to Facebook, I had no idea that it would be what it is right now. Right. Now it's just a farm of information. And unbeknownst to most of us, it was being sold to uh, companies for right. marketing purposes. But what, what steps are taken to, pro to protect this data? Well, as you know, we got burned by that in 2016. So we do have really smart tech people trying to figure all this out. But the problem mm -hmm. is it's really hard to keep ahead of all the hackers because mm -hmm. they're smart, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think we can. Pr First of all, it, it's actually not our list that's the problem because we don't have a list. We're going to simply being used ex as an exchange. What we are going to do, hopefully, is provide some resources to all our partners um, to help them um, fight off being mm -hmm. hacked. Do you think the system will somehow create more polarization in the sense where, for example, if I'm running for office and if I know I have a certain base in one particular area, then I only go to that area, maybe because it's the best use of my resources, and then I won't necessarily engage with people who disagree with me, and therefore we won't get those important democratic conversations. Do you think that creates some sort of... Well, that is the, the the antidote to that is running in fifty states. That's right. why I wore this tie with fifty right. states. I see. I see. Um, <laughs> now I know what that is. You, if you if you don't run in Alabama because you don't think a Democrat can ever win in Alabama, which we now, by the way, have a United States senator from Alabama, mm -hmm. um, then Rush Limbaugh gets to deliver the Democratic message to you every day. Mm -hmm. So you really have to be everywhere, and you have to. There are organizations that we're helping to fund, I'm involved in effort helping to fund, um, which are which are fighting in Mississippi and mm -hmm. Oklahoma and really Nevada and really, you know, areas that we have in the Nevada. We never used to do well. Now we own the place. And this is part of your 50 state strategy. It's part of the 50 state strategy. Mm -hmm. You have you shouldn't be afraid to be a Democrat in a Republican area. I mean, it's hard now with Trump cranking up everybody and all right. that stuff. But the truth is, the more local you are, the more people know you, and the more less they care about what party you're in, and the more they care about what they think of you as a human being. So, you know, we've elected Democrats in very odd places, and, and that, that's a lot of these groups. The most other interesting thing that's starting to happen in a really big way is African-American candidates are being supported by white voters. So, for example, there's a woman in Illinois who won, uh, whose, whose district is 14% black. Hmm. And she's now the representative. Right. That I mean, there's a lot of that stuff going on. Especially, she is, of course, one of the younger, one of the new women in Congress that got 
elected in this big thing we had. So the 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 way that your generation looks at uh, representation and race is very, very different, and I think it's very healthy. What I think is, the one thing we have to be sure of is that your generation doesn't think, you're not going to think this, but the white folks are, uh-huh. that race is not a problem anymore. Oh, we're post-racial. Well, that is BS. Well, let's talk about that. Why is, well, yeah. <laughs> because the people who think that are exactly the people who should be understanding that it's not over. And, and you know, and... Uh, I mean, I hate to say, use this phrase, but it is true. It's sort of white privilege. I mean, you don't realize you have that privilege. Well, how do you confront someone who doesn't want to acknowledge that privilege? You have to explain to them, and they mostly will listen to it, and sometimes they won't, but um, it's just mm-hmm. a fact. But is that conversation some sort of a, because I feel like when you, when you raise that, it makes people extremely uncomfortable. It does, mm-hmm. and it's easier if a white person talks, white, white people have mm-hmm. to talk about talk, talk to white people about race. Mm-hmm. You know, after all, race is a white problem, not a black problem, racism, mm-hmm. really. So, um, you know, we, we have to talk to people, and we have to try to not make them defensive, because you never learn anything when you're defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got to, but we have to say, look, here's how it works, and here's, Here's what right. the problem is. Why do you think that now the concept of reparations is a comfortable conversation now? Because I've noticed that there are a couple of candidates that, that are raising it. Um, I'm actually shocked that they're speaking about it. But is this just the, the fact that it's, that it's on the table now by certain candidates? Is that a step towards a less racist society? Um, it might be. I don't know yet. Um, that, I, I have to see how that conversation plays out. There's a columnist, and I've forgotten where he works now. Uh, named Richard North Patterson, who just wrote a really, really good article about this. And he, he was, he's white, and he's mm-hmm. talking to a white audience, and he says, you know, you keep talking about how why black people aren't assimilated. It's because you wouldn't let them assimilate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talk about the Ukrainians and the Jews and everybody who assimilated, and, but black people didn't assimilate. Well, you wouldn't let them assimilate. Mm-hmm. Not after slavery was over, you kept them out of institutions for 100 years, legally. Right. So, uh, you know, I think it's an important conversation that we have it. Uh, I think also what happened in Georgetown University was a really big deal when they discovered that they'd sold slaves in the mm-hmm. 1800s in order to pay their budget deficit. And the student body at Georgetown, which is almost entirely, well, it's not almost entirely, but is really heavily white, mm-hmm. voted to, do, to have reparations, to, be part, have, to have the university participate in some form of reparations. Now, mm-hmm. then there's going to be a big argument about what is the form that works. Right, that's the, and that's, yeah. uh, that's really a complicated argument, and obviously that is not a conversation just for the white community. Right. Um, but the, the central conversation about racism can't be accus- accusatory. Mm-hmm. We, we did that, and it worked, and now we have to, and I think Obama's presidency had a lot to do with this. Awesome. I think it's a better conversation to have because Barack Obama was president of the United States, mm-hmm. and people, especially white people, got to, and black people, got to see a black man in the, in the highest office and the most powerful office of the world. Mm-hmm. I think that did start to change a lot of people's thinking. Certainly not everybody. Mm-hmm. That's what the Trump backlash is about. Right. But an awful lot of people who were... Um, white liberals who thought they would were no longer racist began mm-hmm. to think more about what that meant. Absolutely. And I, 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 I do agree with that. But also at the same time, when I look at Barack Obama, he had to be the perfect candidate. He had no, you know, no, no, nothing wrong with him at all. But then you consider Donald Trump right now. I think a, it, to quote Joe Biden, he was clean and articulate. Right, <laughs> articulate. I don't think. I, right, I think. I think. I think. Um, saying that someone's articulate just doesn't. To me, it's just 
it's, it doesn't make sense to me. However, well, it's a, yeah. I mean, it's racial supposition. It is, yeah, I agree, yeah, right. Just, yeah. but I, guess, well, I guess what I'm trying to say, it, it, it's frustrating that Obama had to be the perfect person to open everybody's eyes up. And if, had he done anything, like even marginally close to what Donald Trump had done, he'd be out of it. Right. You well, know? actually, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. the last president who did something marginally close was out of it, right. which was Richard Dixon. And I have mm-hmm. high hopes for Trump taking the same path. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I want to uh, come back to this topic, but I want to shift right. over to the conversation to um, th- this, uh, what's going on with these discussions around capitalism and socialism. Right. So you mentioned that capitalism has to work for everybody else. And I think this is partly due to like, the rise of socialism. We have you know, scathing criticism of, criticisms of capitalism. But when you say that we have to make capitalism work for everybody else, what, what exactly does that mean? Okay, How does that look so like? um, first of all, let me be really clear about this. Um, I think capitalism is in our souls as human beings. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, w- w- we are flawed species. We mm-hmm. are great in some ways and remarkable, and we're also selfish and greedy. Mm-hmm. Most all of us have some of that in us. Right. So what capitalism does is put our not-so-good tendencies to work. Mm-hmm. The problem is there have to be rules in capitalism. So, I mean, my father fought in the war and came back from China saying, you know, the, the Chinese are never going to be communists. They work too hard and they are industrious. And, so, and today, that's, it's not a communist nation anymore. It's an authoritarian nation, but it's not a communist. And they're very successful. I think that is sort of in everybody's soul. If you look at in Africa, especially in places like Nigeria, which has plenty of problems, but it's a capitalist country and people are, this is, people all over the world, no matter what their culture for the most part, there are a few small cultures that, that really are socialist, but they're not many. So we're going to live with capitalism. What does that mean? And because that's individuals will want to get ahead and do this. It means that whatever, and not everybody expects to have to be rich. They'd like to be. What they hate is cheating. Mm. And, what, what's, and we've seen this before in the 1920s. Um, or actually before that, 20s was the excess that led to the collapse. But Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican, gained prominence as busting the big trusts who were cheating the hell out of people by taking away competition, running over competition, and so forth and so on. So in order, I think we have to make capitalism work. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of capitalism versus socialism is a silly way to think. Mm-hmm. In fact, we are also socialists. If you have a, a healthcare system that is for everybody, that's socialist. Mm-hmm. If you have a bus system that suits for everybody, that's socialist. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, these, you know, socialism is really invented to appeal to the old people that were around when communism was serious. Right. And young people don't give a damn one way or the other because it doesn't mean anything to them. Mm-hmm. This is a, a, you know, a Republican talking point. I don't think it's going to have any effect on the election at all. Mm-hmm. What we do have to rein in the excesses of capitalism and the b- way to do it is to, people want to get rich, fine. I have no problem with that. Mm-hmm. Let them get rich building housing, building schools, uh, building, getting opportunity. Give them big tax credits for that. Do mm-hmm. not give them tax credits for collateralized mortgage obligation and derivative training, which benefit people that already have a billion dollars and don't need another billion. Without That's all I'm thinking we should do. Absolutely. Now, I want to go over, you were the longest serving governor of, of Vermont. 
And actually, what, I wasn't. You yeah. wasn't. Uh, Vermont was an independent republic for 15 years between 1777 okay. and 1791, <laughs> and there was a governor um, named Thomas Chittenden who had served 17 one-year terms. Mm-hmm. So I, so I am the longest. So I, I served 12, right. six two-year terms. Mm-hmm. So I am the longest-serving governor in the history of the state of Vermont because he served nine of his terms I when see. it was a republic and seven of his terms when he was when he was. Uh, that makes sense now. So I. Yeah, right. but not, the longest-serving governor in the history of Vermont is Thomas Chittenden. I am the okay. longest-serving governor in the history of the state of the Vermont. state of Vermont. Okay, <laughs> we we do have to be precise. Now, w- what lessons can we learn from the healthcare? What, what lessons can the country learn from the healthcare system in Vermont? Well, you just have to do it. Um, in 1992, <laughs> no, I mean in 1992, here's what happened: the governor dropped dead. I was lieutenant governor, and I became governor. I was a Democrat; he was a Republican. We, we about half the states work that you have an independence election for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, uh, the first week was a disaster. I mean, I was trying to, this guy was a giant figure. It had been there for five terms or something. And it was the middle of a bad recession. Mm-hmm. And after, you know, after seven days of, you know, 20-hour days and, and all that, I found myself in my office by myself. And I thought, you know, you never expected this. What do you want to do with it? Mm-hmm. So I wrote down five things and uh, that I thought were really important. Because in government, this is actually true in life in general, you tend to concentrate on what is urgent, not what's important. Hmm. And about 90% of everything we deal with every day is urgent and 10% is important. So I wanted to write the important things down so I never let a day go by without doing something about it. At the top of the list was universal health insurance. And you might ask, what is the governor of a state of 600,000 people going to do about universal health insurance? Mm-hmm. But I cared deeply about it. It's actually why I ran for president. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the Iraq war was going to happen. I ran because I thought we had to balance the budget and have health insurance for everybody. Mm-hmm. So that was at the top of the list. Well, along comes Bill Clinton, and I helped Bill Clinton a lot, and they he, they never forgot. You can say what you want about the Clintons, but they didn't ever forget their friends. Um, and they gave me a waiver. So in 1992, every child in Vermont uh, below 18 years old got health insurance because we had a Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. We eliminated pre-existing conditions, and we, to- we told the insurance companies they couldn't charge more than 20% above their lowest rate to any person. So if you were 50 years old and sick as hell, you only had to pay 20% more than a 25-year-old. <laughs> so we did what, a lot of what was in Obamacare 20 years before Obamacare, more than 20 years before Obamacare. And I still get people coming up to thank me today, single dads, single moms. They don't have insurance, but their kids have insurance, mm-hmm. which is what really matters. Now, could we have done more? Probably not as a small state. I mean, you really have to do this as a nation, but you can do an enormous amount. We also had a program called Success by Six because I believe that um, the, 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 the path to jail begins not in school. I think mm-hmm. this path to jail begins in families early on who are deprived. The most interesting thing about this, of course, this actually has nothing to do with race. Everybody mm-hmm. assumes that it does. In Vermont, which is the second whitest state in the country, all the poor people are white. Mm-hmm. And they have exactly the same problems as everybody else does elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we visited every child in the, or every mom in, who gave birth in the hospital. And Vermont's a groovy place, so we have about 8% that do home births and all this kind of stuff. So, which as a physician, I don't approve of, but there's probably some in the audience that would like to disagree with me. Um, But, uh, so we visited every, and we offered them a home visit. Mm -hmm. Most people say yes, and if they didn't, we didn't, we're not the child police, right? Mm -hmm. And they could pick whoever they wanted, as long as they had social training. So each Mm -hmm. community, my favorite was Springfield, Vermont, which was Mm -hmm. a poor 
town that had seen better days because the manufacturing industry has left. They sent the school nurse in. Mm-hmm. Now you have a connection. These are deprived families. I mean, most of them weren't deprived families, but you can tell if you have any kind of social service background mm-hmm. when a home is in trouble, whether there's drugs, whether there's uh, abuse, whether there's a single mom who's overstressed and so forth and so on. We get those kids and the parents into services right away. Mm-hmm. And we tried to keep the moms and dads at least co-parenting. We, uh, some would babysit with, uh, under supervision while the others would go out and get jobs and then they'd switch around and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. In the first, I was there for 12 years, and unfortunately, my predecessor, who was not of my party, got rid of the program. Mm. Child abuse dropped by 50%. Child sexual abuse dropped by 70%. uh, And foster care under 12 dropped by 50%. Mm. Now, I did it because I thought that 20 years from now, we'd see lower prison now the problem because the program ended before that could happen. Why did they get rid of the program? Because it was a Republican. They wanted to cut the budget and he didn't like it because it was a Democratic idea. Mm-hmm. Although in fairness, we snuck it through without bothering to tell the legislature they didn't notice because <laughs> we did a little piece by little piece and uh, all of a sudden there it was. They tried to get rid of it and the public, it was a big public uproar so right. they couldn't. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff we ought to do in, in the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, nobody gets to be a criminal when they're 18 years old. I right. mean, they come from difficult family circumstances, and we mm-hmm. can do something about that. Absolutely. I agree. What, what are your thoughts on uh, universal basic income? I know that's what answer. That's a yeah. really interesting topic, and nobody mm-hmm. talks about it yet that's, that is thinking about what's going to happen. Everybody believes, and I believe, that climate change is going to be the biggest problem facing your generation. Mm-hmm. It may there may be another really big problem. Automation and artificial intelligence are eliminating jobs, a lot of them. Automation's already eliminated a lot of jobs. In River Rouge, which is this enormous auto plant Mm -hmm. uh, near Detroit, they have roughly the same car output that they did in the heyday of the auto industry 50 years ago, or 40 years, 50 Mm -hmm. years ago. They're third the size of the workforce. And of the workforce, half or a third of them are women. Mm. So that's a hell of a lot of men that can't work in that thing anymore and that job anymore if you this has been this has been true in the minority community for years but if you're a white guy who's 55 years old and you don't know how to use the internet and you lose your job you you ain't getting another one Mm. so now they're also beginning to experience what happens with automation and ai is going to take doctors and lawyers jobs i see it already yeah um I, i don't know that this is true but it was told to me by somebody i trust who was from Tennessee, he said, uh, at night at Tennessee, there's one radiologist covering the whole state because the x-rays are all read by AI and the complicated ones he gets and the rest of them, he he doesn't have to, I mean, they're all computer read. Well, that's a hell of a lot of radiologists that aren't going to be working anymore. So here's the question about UBI. Mm -hmm. And this is the universal basic income. That is, you just get an income, you're guaranteed the income whether you work or not. So... It goes against the grain of every way we were raised. We yeah. were all raised, you gotta work hard, that's how you make your money. If you don't work hard, you don't make money, and so forth and so on. That was the sort of Calvinist way we were raised. So that even for me, who's to the left of center, um, I sort of go like that when I have to talk about this. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to do something. Yeah. Um, you can't have a whole generation of, of people that can't find a job. And it's happening in Europe right now. The chances are your barista has a PhD and a, and a degree. Oh, I know it, lawyers that also yeah. work at bars. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it, so we're going to have to rethink how we do this. Um, 
And there's a really ex interesting experiment that's going on in Egypt right now, of all places, with my good friend, Dictator Sisi, um, <laughs> who's apparently Trump's good friend. <laughs> but I, I have a lot of friends around the world because I do a lot of democracy building work around the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I was visiting with one of them the other day. The, e Egypt has an economy that's a mess in part because the army runs the economy and they're not so good at it. Mm -hmm. um, but what CC did, he did it to save money, but it turns out I think it's working really well. What they did was they subsidized bread and gasoline and things like that mm -hmm. for everybody. Well, if you think about that, that's great if you're poor. If you're rich, you don't need it. Mm -hmm. But they were subsidizing, you know, the rich guy's gas, too, because they the, the subsidy would go to lower the price of the companies that were making this stuff, and they didn't know when it was going out the door, who was going to get the bread or the mm -hmm. gas. So what CC did is to stop the subsidies entirely and then to give cash grants to the poorest people. UBI. UBI. Yeah. And it apparently works pretty well. There's an experiment in Kenya, in Nairobi, where uh, people got cash grants, and they mostly did not use them mm -hmm. the way all the Calvinist types that, like me, yeah. who grew up this way, think they put a new roof in the house, they sent their kids to school, they did things that they normally couldn't do. Mm -hmm. There was a percentage that used them and drank and all this, and it turns out, <laughs> this is not going to surprise a lot of half the audience, it turns out that if you give the grant to the women in the family, it gets used a lot smarter than it does if you give it to the men. I just not all men. I'm not right. going to diss everybody here, but right. I mean that was the research. It was really interesting. I think UBI is going to have to happen in some way, and mm -hmm. the question is, how are you going to do it? I think it's an enormous challenge because all of us have been brought up to believe that work and work is two things. It's important. One is it is. Uh, supposed to be proportionate to what you mm -hmm. make, which really isn't so true. Mm -hmm. The other is its identity. Yes. It's identity for men for sure. And now that women are a very substantial part of the workforce, it's becoming identity for women. Hmm. So what do you do if your identity no longer has to do with your work because there isn't any? And you're, I mean, these are huge questions. Yeah. And the, the, the solution is not going to be overnight. It's not just a matter of writing checks or handing out the cash. We have to actually think about who we are as a species in a different way. And that is going to be very hard, and it's not going to be done in my generation. Yeah, I think it depends on how much you give. For example, if you give a thousand extra dollars every month, right. that would change people's lives. A thousand dollars extra month wouldn't, you know, that's not enough for you to leave your job or to you know, let go of, of your other right. obligations. So it depends on how much you give away. But what, like, what ideological shifts would it take? Like, what, for example, you said that, I don't, I don't know that it's ideological. I mean, you know, Democrats are raised to believe that work and is tied mm -hmm. up to value and identity just as well as Republicans are. It's more mm -hmm. prevalent in the Republican Party because they're more conservative and less kind right. of social minded. Mm -hmm. But we're all brought up that way. Right. Um, and and it's also a little in our souls because mm -hmm. the selfishness in all of us thinks that we can get ahead and, and people who make more money are somehow a little better. And, mm -hmm. and you know, that goes on everywhere. Right, right. So it's, it, what, the real problem is not so much um, the left or right. The real problem is sort of redoing how we think about money mm -hmm. and the connection that money and value have in identifying who we are as a, as a human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and I think the biggest one, particularly for men, is identity. Mm -hmm. Our jobs are and our dignity are tied up in our work. Somebody's running out around. I don't know which candidate it is because there's 22 of them. <laughs> his campaigning on the dignity of work. 
Well, that's a great slogan because it because we're all brought up to think that there's dignity in work, and people who can't work aren't accorded the kind of dignity that a human being ought to be. Well, if you're going to talk about the dignity of work, you're going in the, exactly the opposite direction that you're going to have to start thinking about if you want UBI. So if UBI is not passed, what advice would you give a young person maybe going into college or wants to change a career? What are the most important skills if most work out there is being automated? What advice would you give to someone? There's going to be a lot of stuff that's not automated. This has really started to change my thinking about healthcare. I've always thought that healthcare is an outrageously expensive industry, which almost takes up a fifth of our gross national product. Healthcare jobs can't be replaced by AI at the core. You can't replace a bedside LPN or a nurse or a, mm-hmm. somebody like that uh, with a machine. Uh, that's not going to happen. Right. So it, isn't it funny that for so many years I've talked about the cost of healthcare, mm-hmm. and now I'm thinking maybe it's not a bad thing that we have 20% of our GNP in healthcare because those jobs aren't going to be lost. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think service jobs are going to be good. I also think startups are great, mm-hmm. and you're generation has done a lot of those. The problem is you fail two or three times before you succeed for most of them. And everybody thinks they're going to be the next Bill Gates. And of course, that's not true. That's not true. It's tremendously tremendously difficult. I I do agree. Yeah, I think that most of the jobs that require human interaction are extreme. uh, Those won't be replaced. For example, if you know how to, if you're a plumber, if you're a handyman, these situations that there's no way that a system could could take over. And if you make your living picking somebody up and putting them in a wheelchair and taking care of them, that's not going to be replaced anytime in the mm-hmm. near future either. Right. So, some have said, I want to shift it over to somehow into, into race a bit of it more, but some would say that the loss of these jobs due to automation is actually uh, contributing to the rise of white nationalism. Because That's true. Of the <laughs> this is really interesting. There's a wonderful book out called Strangers in Their Own Land. It's by a woman named uh, Arlie Hochschild, who's a screaming left-wing intellectual from San Francisco and a great, great writer. She went down to live in the Bayou country of Louisiana for a year, which is all Trump people. Mm-hmm. And they've really gotten screwed. The oil companies have dropped the land, polluted their water. Their shrimping industry is getting worse, the scalloping and all, the clamming and all that stuff. They can't complain about the oil companies. It's the only jobs that pay well. And there's a couple of pages in there that I, it was just my aha moment. So, And she likes them. I mean, she, you know, these are people that care about community and stuff like that. Are they racist? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, they're, they're human beings. So she, one of the women she's talking to says something like, you know, we see it's us waiting in line patiently. Mm-hmm. We've had a tough time. We think it'll get better. But people keep cutting ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Immigrants are cutting ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Um, Muslims are cutting ahead of us. Uh, women are cutting ahead of us. Gay people are cutting ahead of us. People keep cutting ahead of us. And I suddenly realized these are white people that are losing their white privilege and they never knew they had white privilege. Mm. It was just this incredible, yeah and, yeah, and it's true. Mm-hmm. And they have lost what they assumed. It, it, look, the story of somebody who loses their job at 50 and never gets another one is really commonplace in the minority community and the mm-hmm. color people of color. Mm-hmm. White folks weren't, aren't used to that and mm-hmm. it's happening to them now because they don't have the, these people with, who lack education do not have the skills to get back into the economy once they lose a job and they're old. Is it going to get worse before it gets better? Yes. It's going to get worse. We've got to do a better job training people. I actually think, and I don't know why we haven't done this, except that everything moves so slowly. 
the best way of training people for jobs is to have businesses take over vocational education. Hmm. It's the system they use in Germany. So, what, I mean, our school system, they don't have enough money. The, half of the equipment in the vo- vocational places is 10 years old and, and doesn't work for the, what the companies want. In Germany, the companies just run the vocational systems. Mm-hmm. So if you, you want to go to college, that's fine. If you don't, and they have very rigid systems about who can go to college, which I don't think is a good idea. But there are an awful lot of people who get trained, and when they get out of high school, they can go and work for Mercedes-Benz or somebody because mm-hmm. Mercedes-Benz trained them the way they wanted to be trained. Mm-hmm. I think it works for everybody. It'll cost the businesses a little more money, but they'll have a workforce that they can rely on. Mm-hmm. And we'll treat our kids better in high schools that aren't, who aren't necessarily going to go on to college. And I also think that community college, I think this free college stuff is, I think it's a good idea. I think mm-hmm. you can't guarantee it to everybody. We certainly ought to have free community college. Mm-hmm. And we ought to encourage people. Because community college is mostly focused on stuff that you can get a job at as soon as you get out. Practical. Accounting, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, liberal arts education is going to be much tougher. And there's already a bunch of liberal arts places that are closing. I do agree. I feel if you have a liberal arts education, you need at least a master's or a higher uh, degree to make something out of it. Could you speak more about your work in Ukraine that we will talk sure. about back at the room? <laughs> so I do a lot of work. I, I'm on the board of something called the National Democratic Institute, which is a democracy building organization. It's partly funded by Congress. The Republicans have a... A similar organization. It's the only place left in America that we actually get along very well with each other. Um, and uh, this is this sort of we we talked about this earlier because we were talking about the central problem in America today, which I think is corruption, political corruption. Um, so I'm in Ukraine. This was Yanukovych, who was the guy who was kicked out because he was cheating, and he was Putin's guy. He was still the president. And you know, when we go, we don't pick parties, otherwise nobody trusts us. So we meet with everybody. So of course I wasn't gonna meet the president of the country, so I'm meeting the chief of staff. The chief of staff, actually, they, I think they had a quota in Yanukovych's um, government. There could be one honest person, and she was it. She was six feet tall, she was the economics professor, and she spoke perfect English. So she was fired after a year, so I guess the quote, you know, it's kind of like working for Trump. If you're honest, you're not gonna last long. Um, but I'm talking to her, and we're talking about they were sending her rival to court uh, to be tried for corruption, which she was probably did some mm-hmm. guilty of. But I said, you know, you can't, if you're an emerging democracy, you can't send your political rivals to court to be tried because everybody's going to think you're doing it for political reasons. Mm-hmm. Send them to the European courts, and then if you get a guilty verdict, people will believe that. But they're not going to believe it if you get it. And then we're talking about some other stuff, the Russians. And finally, I said, you know, one of the other problems you have here is you cannot have oligarchs running political parties, which is what happens. And then I went, oh, Madam Secretary, I can't give you the rest of this piece of the talk because our court has just legalized oligarchs running political parties in the United States. How so? Citizens United is the probably the third worst decision ever made by the Supreme Court and the third most damaging after Plessy versus Ferguson and uh, Dred Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, they have legalized political corruption. They got rid of, actually, people, this is where it unites conservatives and liberals, which is fascinating. People hate the gerrymandering. They do not think, both conservatives and, I'm not talking about the professionals who love it, because they get to write their own job description and then decide whether they get hired or not. Mm -hmm. But the average person in this country thinks politicians are screwing them, which Mm -hmm. is mostly true. 
Um, and although they're not all bad people, but they do it because they participate in this system. So if you can, what other business is there where you can draw your own job description up and make sure you're the one that gets picked for the job? Well, that's what gerrymandering is. They hate it. They can't stand the idea. This is so interesting. In Arizona, they had a public system of financing. Now, Arizona is a relatively conservative state, and it was more conservative then. They had a Democrat that went under this system. They had a Republican that went under this system. At, it was put in by referendum because, of course, the legislature wouldn't do it because they like the system the way it is. The labor unions and the Chamber of Commerce teamed up to put in a referendum to undo the system. Why? Because these are heavy hitters on both sides and they like the political influence that their money gets. They lost the referendum. The public voted to keep the system of public financing. It only left when Roberts and his crew overturned Citizens United and got rid of any kind of semblance mm-hmm. of fairness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've yet to find out where corporations are people or speech equals money anywhere right. in the Constitution. These guys just make up the Constitution, and I think they're undermining their own legitimacy as a court, which unfortunately undermines the United States of America. I do agree with that. You actually went into my, one of my final questions, which is, if you could amend the Constitution, what would that amendment be? Um... I would never have said this 10 years ago, but I think we ought to seriously consider term limits in the House and the Senate. How was um, Because I think people, you know, the, the, those bodies were never intended to be a permanent source of income and a permanent job. Hmm. And it, there is, it is true that if you have people that have been there for a long time, one, they can deliver for their constituency, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, they know the rules and so forth and so on. California did this and they made the, term limits too short, and the lobbyists basically took over because the representatives had no idea what they were doing. The speaker had been there for one term. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Then they lengthened them. I also regretfully think that the court system isn't so bad we should consider term limits for federal judges. Mm. I mean, what we have now does not represent the United States. They're not fair. People don't respect the court anymore, and they see it as a political body. I think that's a disaster. I agree. Um, so those are two things I would think about. I'm sure if I had the Constitution in front of me, I could find eight more. I know. <laughs> I, I bet. Actually, you said that Plessy versus, uh, versus Ferguson was right. a disaster. Then we had Citizens United. What's the third case? That you uh, Scott, Dred Scott. Oh, Dred Scott. Right. 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 Yeah, I do agree. Um, okay. I think we are about to wrap up right now. First of all, thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure. I know. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> First, I'd like to thank uh, Civic Hall for opening up this amazing space for us. We really appreciate that. Um, of course, we have to thank Sasha Fisher and her crew for Spark Michael Grants and all the amazing work that she's doing. The Banner Podcast could have never existed without the people around me. Uh, I want to thank Jorge Navia, who's our producer, showrunner. He's the one that schedules everything for us. Really appreciate him. Uh, then we have special contributors who are Thomas Giovanni and Marcus Sandifer. Our social media and marketing manager is Zani Jackson-Garrett. And our esteemed advisor, Hazel Weiser, thank you very much. And last but not least, we have our executive producer, Andre Garrett. And one final thing, just make sure you go over to iTunes, Facebook, everywhere that you consume media, and make sure that you subscribe to the Building a New America podcast, leave a review, share the episodes, and I really appreciate everybody's time tonight. Thank you very much.